The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His blood. That last forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know That He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began asking and answering several questions regarding salvation. We continue in this, the second episode with our study of salvation, with the common question, quote, how do I get into heaven, unquote, or, quote, how do I achieve salvation, unquote. Having already discussed four important and common misconception beliefs regarding salvation, we resume with the question and answer to number five. The fifth answer to the question, how do I get into heaven, or how do I achieve salvation, is, I will get into heaven, or I will achieve salvation, quote, if I do the best I can, unquote. Now, as if we haven't heard the refrain before, here again, the answer makes the presumption that God allows man to make his own independent internal assessment and eventual judgment of his own behavior. In this scenario, man need not consult God or his word to define or assess his own status. Further, God would have no input as to whether any man has or has not achieved reconciliation or salvation. 
In the end, if we say that merely, quote-unquote, doing the best we can is all that is required, then the only thing any man need do is look within himself and regardless of actual behavior during one's life, say, quote, well, I did the best I could, unquote. Consequently, this premise attempts to transfer the emphasis in reality from actual results to sheer intent or sincerity. This being the case, we have to ask what does God's word say that God is looking for as the benchmark for salvation? Is God's word saying that the proverbial glass ceiling begins and ends with only hope, intents, desire, wants, wishes, sincerity, or trying really, really hard? Or is there some essential objective ingredient or ingredients which God sees as being inviolable, indispensable, and absolute when it comes to salvation? In order to correctly answer the question, one would have to ignore man's opinions and assessment and defer to God's word as the arbiter. In surveying God's word against the above answer, two issues become predominant. One, is man's best, at its very possible best, ever good enough? The question requires that we establish a goal with which God would approve. If now we change the question to ask, is there a goal which scripture gives us? The answer comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which says, quote, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect, unquote. Given this goal, we know that if we honestly make an analysis of ourselves against the prism of Scripture's revelation, we all wind up back at the same boat of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, which clearly sets the record straight when it says, quote, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Unquote. Two, since the above verses and a myriad of others make it clear that man is virtually incapable of achieving reconciliation and salvation based upon merits, work, or efforts, we must look for another method by which reconciliation and salvation are achieved. In order to make it clear, whatever method we find must be independent of man's merits, since man's nature and character are conditionally flawed. This being the case, we would have to survey scripture to locate a method for achieving reconciliation and salvation, which comes from a source other than man whereby we can have assurance of success. In summary, when someone asks the question, how do I get into heaven, or how do I achieve salvation, and they answer the question by saying something similar to, I will get to heaven, or I will achieve salvation, if I do the best I can, the reality is that doing 100% the best you can, 100% of the time, still leaves us fallen utterly short of God's perfection, which is the standard God uses to determine reconciliation and salvation. The starting point where 
each and every man truly opens the door to allow God to do the, his heavy lifting begins with a sincere understanding where we say, like Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, quote, Then say I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, unquote. Once we get our minds, hearts, and arms around the fact that we each are conditionally flawed, broken, and empty vessels fit for nothing on our own other than destruction, it is at that moment that we unconditionally surrender all that God moves to heal, to restore, to lift us up, and to fill us with His presence. We pass by His grace through faith, from darkness, death, and destruction, to purpose, destiny, light, eternal life with joy and honor as His restored image bearers. 6. The sixth answer to the question, How do I get into heaven? Or how do I achieve salvation? Is I will get to heaven, or I will achieve salvation, quote, if I haven't harmed or killed anyone, unquote. Unfortunately, this answer has a gaping hole requiring definitions which are absent. For example, how do we define harm? Is harm limited to some horrible, debilitating condition caused as a result of my intentional and malicious act? Or do we allow the other extreme, where any act or inaction on my part, intentional or not, which causes any kind of mental, physical, spiritual, or other harm, however slight, to qualify? When we frame the question this way, we immediately see, given the disparity, that we must now insert man's opinion to determine what harm means to each person. This again opens the door to horizontal judgment from man to man, rather than using the vertical measuring tape from God to man. The same argument can be made regarding the definitions surrounding killing and or murder. In either case, the correct issue in context is what does God have to say about harm and killing? Once we understand what God says, we can then apply that standard to our lives and see where we stand regarding salvation. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, quote, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, You are worthless, i.e. raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire, unquote. In this verse, Jesus points out that while the fifth commandment orders believers not to kill, Jesus lowers the bar and states that anger towards one's brother is enough to trigger the judgment of God. Likewise, anyone who calls one's brother worthless or a fool is in danger of hellfire. Thus, from God's perspective, the qualifying issue is not the outward act of actual murder or harm. Rather, the issue is what goes on within the heart. 
the reason that God looks at and sees the heart while man judges horizontally according to the outward appearance, the reason is that God looks at and sees the heart while man judges horizontally according to the outward appearance. As a result, it is possible to go an entire lifetime and never kill or harm anyone, while at the same time, the mere thought entering one's heart to harm or kill someone just once would disqualify us from the perfection which God requires. Remember, according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Unquote. And to repeat, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, quote, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, unquote. In summary, when someone asks the question, how do I get into heaven? Or how do I achieve salvation? And they answer the question by saying something similar to, I will get to heaven or I will achieve salvation if I haven't harmed or killed anyone. The reality is that God looks at our hearts In this case, either our heart conforms in every respect to the perfection of God's image, or it does not. As to which of the two is true, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, hold the answer. For those who are diehards, who want to insist that they have never caused harm or the death of another person, and therefore God will give them a special merit badge, for any such in this group, I would regretfully have both you and I recall that it was our sin and our separation which created the necessity for Jesus to suffer, harm, and die. Once we realize this, we must now concede that we all have Jesus' suffering, sacrifice, crucifixion, death, and burial on our hands. 7. The seventh answer to the question, how do I get into heaven, or how do I achieve salvation, is, I will get to heaven, or I will achieve salvation, quote, if I keep the majority of the Ten Commandments, unquote. Now, for those who are a bit rusty, the Ten Commandments are as follows. 1. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 2. Thou shalt not make any graven image. 3. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. 4. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 5. Honor thy father and thy mother. 6. Thou shalt not kill. 7. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 8. Thou shalt not steal. 9. Thou shalt not commit false witness and ten thou shalt not covet. Having reviewed what the Ten Commandments are, the first issue that we need to address is the idea that one need only keep a majority or a greater percentage of the commandments, or that one only need do their best or try really hard. Most, if not all these ideas about utilizing one's efforts to merit salvation and or God's favor have been discussed in the previous questions and answers. Insofar as the belief that one can achieve salvation by keeping a majority of the Ten Commandments 
James chapter 2, verse 10, sets this record straight when it says, quote, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, unquote. Some may at this point believe, at some level, that they have not violated the Ten Commandments. To those who have such doubts, I would respectfully ask, Have you ever cursed using the Lord's name, or any variation thereof? Have you ever looked at another man's wife, or another woman's husband, with desire in your heart? If so, Jesus says that you have already committed adultery. Have you ever taken something which did not belong to you without asking? If so, you have stolen. Have you ever lied, misled, or withheld the truth when needed? Then you have committed false witness. Have you ever wanted something which belonged to another person? Then you have coveted. Remember, God sees and knows all. Nothing is hidden or secret from God. So this is not an issue of whether one has been convicted in court of disobedience to the commandments. This is not an issue of whether one has been caught breaking the commandments. According to God, merely having one of these issues surface in one's heart is enough to trigger guilt and failure to keep his commandments. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus himself says, quote, If you love me, keep my commandments, unquote. John chapter 14, verse 21, says, quote, He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him, unquote. John chapter 15, verse 10, says, quote, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And finally, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Notice, Jesus does not say, keep a majority of his commandments. He doesn't say, do the best you can following his commandments. He doesn't talk about those who are sincere about his commandments, even though they fail love him. He says, keep my commandments. Further, Jesus says that those who love the Father and or Jesus keep his commandments. Those who do not keep his commandments do not love God. Finally, those who say they love God but do not keep his commandments are liars. This theme of loving God, being a child of God, being born from above, and in essence qualifying for salvation being conditioned on keeping the commandments is repeated many times within scripture. Thus we know that according to God, keeping his commandments is non-negotiable. This is an extremely problematic situation since according to Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12, it is clear that none of us are able to do good on our own no matter what. As a result, we have a dilemma. On the one hand, scripture makes it clear that God wants us to keep his commandments and to be perfect as he is perfect in order to demonstrate righteousness and to love him. On the other hand, 
the same scripture tells us that we are all fallen short and that none of us have the ability to do good and that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. If both of these statements are intrinsically true, then how do we achieve salvation? What hope do we have? In summary, when someone asks the question, how do I get into heaven? Or how do I achieve salvation? And they answer the question by saying something similar to, I will get to heaven or I will achieve salvation if I keep the majority of the Ten Commandments. The truth of the matter is that the only person who has kept all Ten Commandments 100%, 100% of the time, is Jesus. Anything less than 100%, 100% of the time falls short of perfection and God is not impressed because my percentage is higher than another person's percentage or is higher than average. In conclusion, at this point we have asked and answered, discussed and explored seven classic viewpoints which are common misconceptions regarding how we get to heaven and or achieve salvation. For those who are paying close attention, you may have noted a common theme to all of the assumptions present. The common theme present is that man is constantly laboring under the premise that salvation is an issue which is measured horizontally according to man's definitions. In each case, the questions and answers presented by man diverge from God and his word to man and his own internal assessments of himself and other men. In each case, as soon as we examine man's assumptions and beliefs against the revelation of God found in Scripture, we find that man's assumptions are in error and fall completely short of God and his ways. However, lest we finish believing all is lost and there is nothing but bad news, for those who are saying, you convince me, since man is sinful and flawed, there is no way that man is able to achieve salvation, let's ask, is there any good news? Is there any way man can be assured of achieving salvation? How do we get to heaven? In order to properly answer the question, we need to consult God's word and his revelation to discover and understand the truth of sin, separation, rebellion, and wrath versus repentance, reconciliation, and reward. When we condense God's Word, the Bible, down into a Cliff's Notes summary, we would find the following points which are indispensable elements for understanding, following, and most importantly, achieving the goal of salvation. 1. Man, Adam and Eve, as well as all things, were created perfectly. They were very good. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and they were bestowed with God's covering grace. Adam and Eve were given free choice. 2. Man, Adam and Eve, exercised their free will and chose to abandon their covering of grace held through faith in preference to seek their own perfection and righteousness through the pursuit of the knowledge of good and evil. 3. As a result of Adam and Eve's choice, they and all mankind discovered their own nakedness. We discovered then and now by examining God's revelation of good and evil, i.e. the law, that we each and every one are fallen hopelessly short of God's perfection. There is nothing that anyone can do or refrain from doing on their own that will merit God's approval. 
This means that no amount of our works, no amount of our righteousness, goodness, sincerity, mercy, charity, no amount of self-deprivation, self-discipline, self-sacrifice, or good intentions, real or imagined, will ever breach the divide between a perfect, holy, and righteous God and any imperfect, unholy, and unrighteous man. The dividing gap between God and man is simply too wide, too far, too deep for any man to ever cross, no matter how hard or how long they might try. 4. It is in this situation of impossibility and inability on man's part due to man's nature and condition that God made the choice to step forward out of eternity and take on the form of a man. He willingly chose to become a man in the form of his son, Jesus. Jesus became fully man and was also fully God in the flesh. Jesus, while a man on earth, lived a completely perfect, holy, and righteous life. Jesus fulfilled 100% of the law and the commandments 100% of the time. Jesus, in fact, did everything that God requires to be pleasing good, perfect, and righteous in his sight on our behalf. Jesus did all those things which God required of us, for us, since none of us have the ability to do any of them. In summary, regarding the success of this role, God the Father says of Jesus the Son and his life in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, quote, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Unquote. First Peter chapter two verse twenty two says quote, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Unquote. First John chapter three verse five says quote, Ye know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Unquote. Finally, Hebrews chapter four. Verse 15 says, quote, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Unquote. 5. Having lived the 100% and acceptable life before God for all men, Jesus volunteered to take on all of our sins, past, present, and future, upon himself. Jesus approached the judgment seat of God the Father as a completely perfect, innocent, and righteous man. Despite being perfect and innocent, Jesus voluntarily accepted all blame, guilt, and responsibility for each and every man's sin, rebellion, imperfection, and shame. In judicial terms, God accepted and allowed the transaction, transferring, imputing, or attributing the good, the perfection, and the righteousness which Jesus had done, and placed it in our account. 6. God poured out his wrath against sin, which we all rightfully deserved, completely upon Jesus upon the cross. Jesus completely paid the vicarious sacrificial price, which is death, for all sin, for all man on our behalf. After death, i.e. the crucifixion, Jesus was buried in the tomb along with our sins. 
7. Jesus rose from the grave, demonstrating that sin, death, and separation have no hold over him. Sin, death, and separation remain buried and have no power over the child of God any more than a criminal case has legal authority over the accused once the accused has been acquitted. 8. Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down next to the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus stands ready to breathe new life, power, and victory to any man through the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. This new life, new birth, being born from above, being born again, is available to all men through his grace, by faith, so that all who yield and submit themselves to Jesus may be reconciled to fellowship and adoption to be called children of the living God. As children of God, we are inheritors of forgiveness, eternal life, and entrance to his presence in heaven with joy and gratitude for all eternity forevermore. Finally, 9. The key to admittance to heaven and to salvation is now, always has been, and always will be only by and through a relationship with Jesus initiated and maintained by his grace through faith in what he is, will, and has already done for each of us. When all is said, when all is done, there are only three possible actions or reactions to answering the question, how do I get into heaven? Or how do I achieve salvation? They are as follows. 1. I don't believe it. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no need of salvation. I'm fine. Everyone is okay. Everything is great. There is no problem other than people like you who want to bother me and other people about myths like these. Leave me alone. 2. That's great. That's nice. But everyone has their own way. I've got my way, you've got yours. One way is just as good as another. We're all doing the best we can, and that's what counts. Stop being so strict and judgmental. God has many names and many different ways, all of which lead to heaven, so relax and leave the rest of us alone. 3. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and an unclean heart. In me, there is no good thing. I confess that I have sinned against you, God. I am separated by my unrighteousness, my imperfection, my rebellion, my pride, by my heart and by my nature, which have and are always ready to go astray from you. I repent. Help me turn away from my way, from my will. Lord Jesus, I place my faith and my trust in you. I believe and confess that you came to earth to accomplish that perfect, good, and righteous life that I am unable to do. I believe that you took all my sins upon yourself and that you died in my place so that I might have life and forgiveness. I believe that you buried my sins, my separation, and death itself, which I deserve, in the grave, so that I might be set free 
and victorious. I believe that you ascended into heaven where you present me and all those who place their faith and trust in you as your sons and daughters who are inheritors of salvation, of heaven, and of eternal life in the joy of your presence forevermore. The only question left is, which are you? Father, we pause to give all honor glory and praise to you that you have not left us alone we thank you that because of your boundless love you have chosen to reach down into the bowels of death hell and the grave where we each and all stood rightly and justly condemned by our own sin separation and rebellion through your love while each of us were in this condition You gave your life so that we might be spared. Though none of us are worthy, you justify us, you cleanse us, and you clothe us with your righteousness and your glory. We are sanctified and made worthy through grace by faith in you, our Lord and Savior, God and King. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have any questions about God the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in